Good morning. It's hard to believe, but we are in our 23rd week of the Gospel of Mark. We're at exactly the midway point. And actually today, many experts of this Gospel call the portion that we're covering today the most significant portion of the book. So I thought I'd take a minute to go through and give us a 30,000-foot view of what we've covered so far in Mark. So as you may recall, Mark's the first gospel written. It was written by John Mark, a cousin of Barnabas, a young man. Uh, as he was a young man, he accompanied both Paul and Peter on some of their missionary journeys. And Mark spent much time with Peter as he preached and acted as Peter's interpreter. He had no doubt heard Peter preach of Jesus a thousand times and was able to write down in this account all of what Peter preached. So because of this obvious influence by Peter, the Gospel of Mark has been nicknamed the Gospel of Peter. Mark wrote this letter to the Christians of Rome who were under persecution from Nero. So Jesus' ministry started with his baptism in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. God himself participated in the baptism by announcing Jesus as his son, with whom he was well pleased. Jesus handpicked his 12 disciples, as you recall, and began teaching and healing around the Sea of Galilee. Jesus performed many miracles in these first chapters, turning water into wine, many miraculous healings, casting out demons, feeding the 5,000. Last week, Davis led us in the study of the first part of Mark 8. And towards the end of it, we studied verses 27 through 30, where Jesus asked the question, who do they say I am? And we saw that Peter's revelation of Jesus when he said, you are the Christ, was acknowledged by Jesus as coming from God. We learned how important it is that our faith is from God and that it's undeserved, imperishable, and it's a gift from him. This week we're going to back up a little bit and we're going to read 27 to 30 again and add the rest of chapter 8. So let's open our Bibles as I read from Mark 8, verses 27 to the end. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, 
but on the things of man. And calling to the crowd with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come to me, would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for our time this morning. And as we come to your word now, would you be merciful to every heart here this morning? Open our eyes to see you and see your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. See him clearly as he really is. Take away from us every distraction. Take away from us everything that veils our view. Lord, help us get rid of false ideas about who Jesus is. Help us to be rid of anything that tries to take our attention away from your word. Lord, would you help us to all hear clearly from you who you truly are, and would give, you, give us all of that that you want us to hear, to see you through what you have said about yourself. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been a blessing this week as I studied for this portion. Um, it's a heavy portion. It's hard. So I reached out. Uh, to the internet, and I looked up a parallel passage that Pastor Rob gave from Luke 9. And I encourage you this week, if you have time, to look on uh, the sermon archives, which are available on our website, um, to Luke 9, 18 to 23, and the second sermon, 24 to 26. Boy, he did a wonderful job, and I hope I can... Uh, do a little bit uh, to um, illuminate this um, parallel passage today. So, okay, okay, this section is probably familiar to a lot of you, at least parts of it. Even if you're not a regular reader of the Bible, it's incredibly powerful, and it's an important passage for us. It's one that is often misunderstood. This is the account of Peter's confession of Christ. It occurs in every one of what we call the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And there is a reason for that. It's a crucial moment in the disciples' journey. So beginning here with this discussion, Jesus shifts his focus to the training of his 12 apostles. His primary focus changes from teaching to the masses to teaching to the few. And this was the training that was going to take the last year of his life. We need to realize that the disciples' misunderstanding of the Messiah was not yours. The way you look at Jesus is not 
all, at all the way that these apostles looked at him. They looked at him as a political deliverer who came to deliver them from the Romans. And their anticipation of the Messiah was just that. And that wasn't Jesus at all. That's not at all why he came. Next time, he will come to rule and reign. But in order for him to rule and reign in our lives, we're going to have to submit to his death, to his resurrection. We're going to have to see our relationship with him at the cross. We also see here that the first time, for the first time, the introduction of Christ's persecution and death. And we see Jesus explaining the cost of discipleship. It's an important lesson. So let's look again at verses 27 to 30. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Or who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others, one of his prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered them, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So there's a lot in there. This was a very significant moment. Up until this point, only God and the demons had acknowledged Jesus for who he is as the Son of God, or specifically here as Christ, which means the Messiah, the one God had promised for centuries to come to save his people. This is the first time in the book of Mark that a disciple says who Jesus is. And we're thinking, yes, they get it. They see Jesus. And they do impart the who. He is part, but they have gross misconceptions of what he has come to do. And so that's the challenge before Jesus here, is yes, they get who he is, but there's a misunderstanding of what he has come to do. Caesarea Philippi, it's an interesting place. It's about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, and it's at the headwaters of the Jordan River. It's at the base of the largest mountain in the Mideast, uh, the Mount Herod, or Hermon. It's about 45 miles or so from Bethsaida, so it's a long way up north. The city was built in honor of Caesar Augustus, who was worshipped as a god by the Romans. But the Greeks, when they took it over, founded 14 temples there to gods that they worshipped. Not just Baal, but also to a god called Pan. And Pan, in Greek mythology, was half man and half goat. You may remember him from junior high school. And he played the Pan flute. And so they worshipped that which was the largest altar there. They worshipped Pan. And then Jesus walks into the area with his disciples and says, let's talk about me. Who do they think I am? Who do you think I am? And it's a place where the Romans come to worship Caesar and the Greek come to worship other idols. Jesus is now there and says to the disciples, who do you think I am? Because that's the issue that will dominate the last year of Jesus' ministry. 
According to verse 28, the public opinion of Jesus is pretty good at this time. They thought it was the he was the resurrection of John the Baptist. They thought he was Elijah or maybe one of the prophets. His public opinion was favorable. And you know, they were sure that God was with him because of the miracles that he performed. They knew he was a supernatural man. They watched from afar. They loved him in a sense of having good opinions about him. But they had no real need for him. They saw no relationship with him and certainly didn't find themselves in their sin desiring him. And that's really why the Lord had come. Well, why not? Why didn't they see this? Why did they miss the fact that he was the Messiah? Well, mainly, it was their concept of a Messiah. There's a lot of people in churches this morning that don't believe that they need to get to heaven by Jesus dying on the cross. They believe a lot of other things. They're sincere, maybe, well-meaning, maybe. You know, in touch with God in a distant sense, an arm's length sense. But there's no real conviction that they need a savior, that they need to be forgiven. And yet, that's the key to the whole gospel. So they miss Jesus, even though these people stood before him. And if you ask people that you know in the South Bay or in the L.A. area, who is Jesus or who was Jesus? There's a lot of opinions, isn't there? Some of them, they'll say he was a myth. He never existed. Or they'll say he was a great moral teacher. He was a spiritual master. All kinds of opinion. Even the Quran of the Muslim faith has a place for Jesus. He's one of the prophets. But none of them are right. None of them have it exactly right. And I think in the popular opinion of today, we too, in fact, many of us in the church, have the wrong ideas about who Jesus is. Let me read you just a couple of what I would call the cultural myths about Jesus today. There's the Jesus who's against tax increases and activist judges and who's for family values and owning firearms and turns the map from blue to red. There's the Jesus who's for reducing our carbon footprint and the social causes of the day. There's the Jesus who helps us cope with life's problems and tells us how valuable we are and not to be so hard on ourselves. There's the Jesus who hates formal religion churches, pastors, priests, and doctrine, and would rather have people out in nature finding the God within. Then there's a Jesus who's a wise, inspirational leader who believes in you and helps you find your center so you can become a better you. He gives you 10 or 12 steps to live your best life now. There's the open-minded Jesus who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for the people who are not as open-minded as he is. There's Jesus who teaches everyone to give peace a chance, imagine a world without religion, and help us remember that all you need is love. There's a Jesus who gets you off the hook when you're in trouble, and you don't need to think of him again till you're in trouble again. And sadly, 
There's an image many have of him as just being a cute little baby in the manger and nothing more. We could go on, but you get the point. And here's the point. Jesus is making to his disciples whether when he asked the question, what do people say? They're wrong. There are all kinds of opinions, partial truths, corruptions, and distortions. But they're not who I am. The truth is, we all have our misguided notions about who Jesus is, and they're not him. So part of what this message is doing is helping us deconstruct our own false notions of who Jesus is. Notice that Jesus does not defend himself or explain himself. He doesn't break down these false notions of who he is. He doesn't go down the list and say, no, I'm not Elijah. I'm not John the Baptist, and here's why. He doesn't need to do any of that. He makes it personal. He takes it from the theoretical, what are they saying about me? What's the word on the street? To the deeply personal, what do you say? What about you? Who do you say that I am? And that's the central question of the whole passage. It's the implication for our lives. Who do you say that I am? Peter's response, you're the Christ. Matthew's gospel gives us a little more detail about Peter's response. There it says, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. So here's what he's saying. You got it right, Peter. God gave it to you. You never would have figured it out on your own. It required divine revelation. And the Bible says divine revelation is given to those who are hungry to know. And Peter sure was hungry. Know this, if you're hungry to know, God is willing to let you know and have you know. But Peter, like all the disciples, grew up with the prophecies of the Messiah. He knew about the compromised, uh, the, the promised deliverer, the anointed one, the king who was to come. And when he says, you are the Christ, we hear the word Jesus Christ, and you might think, that that was his name. Jesus was his name. Christ was his title. Christ comes from the root word meaning anointed one, deliverer, Messiah, king. That is precisely what Peter says. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one I grew up hearing about and praying about. You're the one. You're him. Jesus might have said, good, Peter, you've got it. But Peter's understanding of the Messiah was still not the Messiah that God intended. And he and the other disciples wanted what everyone else wanted, a political deliverer, and had nothing to do about their sins. Notice that Jesus says in verse 30, don't tell anyone. Did you see that? Why did he say that? Well, it's because if the disciples at this point told everyone he's the Messiah with their misconception of what the Messiah came to do, it wouldn't be long before there was a political movement staffed by a loyal, unregenerate people. The movement would have been, you know, 
exciting. They would have said, make Jerusalem great again. But there would have been no relationship with God because their expectation or their anticipation of the Messiah was not at all spiritual. It would have been political. But what Jesus says next is amazing and, quite frankly, confusing. And I think it's in our own minds and hearts today as well. When we come to the question of who Jesus is, Peter gets the right answer to Jesus' question. But Jesus is about to reveal to Peter and the rest of the disciples and us how little they understand, how much they don't grasp, what it means for him to be the Messiah and to be the king. We read from verse 31 through verse 33. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing the disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And you see what Jesus does. In verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must. You see what's going on here now, that they realize he is the Messiah. Jesus is not content for them to determine for themselves what he's come to do. And in fact, as soon as Jesus begins to teach them about who he really is and what he has come to do, we find Peter has the audacity to take him aside and rebuke him, showing Peter did indeed have the wrong understanding of the word Christ. And that may very well be true of us this morning. And there's nothing more dangerous than to come so close, yet be so far. We all know in real life It's common sense to know what a person is and what they are here to do. If you hire a plumber to come to your house because you wanted them to paint your living room, you might end up pretty disappointed. If you're going to an accountant because you're concerned about your health, again, you would be disappointed. We need to know what a person is here to do. What is their job? What is their role? What is their purpose and mission? What are they able to do? We must have a clear understanding, and it's certainly true with the Lord Jesus Christ, that we understand him as the Bible teaches us, teaches him to us. So some people read their Bibles, but they have doubts because what it seems to teach isn't consistent with the Jesus that they know. They may say, well, those things attributed to Jesus must not be true. When Jesus preaches those things that are unpalatable things about judgment, about sin. No, no, Jesus must be so full of love, and he's here to teach us how to be better people. And people claim to love reading the Bible except the parts that don't fit their image of Jesus. We need to let God's word define for us. In fact, we hear the definition recorded for us. Jesus himself is defining for us, defining for his, to his disciples what is the most important thing to understand about him as the Christ. So there in verse 31, we'll read it again, he began to teach them. 
All right, Jesus, we know you're the Christ now. What is the most important thing that we know about you next? And Jesus says that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus, that's crazy because the, the Christ prophesied long ago is the one who would be the servant of God. He would be the one to carry God's word and rescue his people. And he also promised to be the one who would reign forever on the throne of David. And you're telling us that he has to come and suffer and be killed? You see why Peter can't get this straight in his mind. How in the world can you say something like that? And especially, we see the strength of the word Jesus uses. The Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and be killed. You see the word there, the necessity, the indispensability. It must happen. How can he say this? Why is it so important for us to understand that? And you know, when you look at this passage... We really have to let the rest of the Word speak to us. I think the Bible speaks so simply as to why the Word must is there. It confronts us. It shocks us. It challenges us to understand clearly what God is doing. He sent His Son into the world? What is He, what is he doing and what is He telling us to pay attention to? The Chosen One, the One that He is going to send to us why that word must. And if you boil it down, I think it comes down to two things. The first thing is that Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, as the Bible tells us over and over again, must suffer and be killed because of the reality of who we are. And the word that comes across is sin. That's the reality. Peter talks about it in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2:24 where Peter writes He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed The apostle Paul confirms that in 2 Corinthians 5:21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And again, Paul says in Romans 8.3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. So the Bible tells us over and over, it is because of this terrible reality that human beings are sinful, it is because of sin. I don't know if you've ever wondered, well, the centrality of the church is clearly the cross, isn't it? It's everywhere. We talk about the cross. We see the cross. The symbols are everywhere. We talk about it all the time, and the cross is clearly related to Jesus in some way. And yet the Christian asks, why are they so related? Why did Jesus go to the cross? It reminds me of a conversation I heard about a Christian and a Muslim man. And the Muslim man could not get through his mind 
why it was that Jesus was on the cross. Because time and time again, the scriptures tell us that he was perfect. He never sinned against God. He never had deceit on his lips. Not a single evil thought. And yet he was on the cross as a criminal, condemned, suffering, humiliated, and put to death. What is going on here? And those verses we just read from Peter 2 and 2 Corinthians and Romans 8 all tell us that he's not on the cross for his own sins. He's on the cross for the sins of people, for our sins. That's what the Bible tells us so clearly. Now, how can that be the reality? And all of it is because we must understand clearly the nature of God. He is utterly holy. In fact, there's many things we can say about the character of God, who is, but surely in our minds anybody can understand that if there is a God, well, he must be perfect. He must be all-knowing and all-powerful. But what we so often miss is he must be all good. He is and he is all and perfectly and fully good. How would you describe yourself in that question of goodness? You might be good compared to some people, but are you perfectly and fully and entirely good, never having an impure thought in your mind? Your conscience tells you, well, I'm not perfect, and I know I'm not always good. And the reality is, when we come before a perfectly good God, that is our biggest problem. Because God does not accept anything less than perfect. His holiness must be satisfied. He is of pure eyes, and he can't hold evil and allow it to get away unscathed. So the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world, but what does he come to do? He went to the cross because of our sin. When you think about the Lord Jesus Christ and the cross, you can understand this question. How does God see our imperfections and our failures and our weaknesses and our evil and our sin? How does God see sin? And when you go to the cross... And you see there that when his own son, whom he loves for all eternity in the Trinity, when he goes to the cross, and at that moment he takes upon his shoulders, bears in his body the sins of the world, what does God do? The beloved son of God. Remember his baptism. Remember what the Lord said? This is my son, of whom I am well pleased. Yet, when he was before God Almighty, bearing the sins of the world, we see only one sentence that was passed, condemnation. He said, God's holiness being so pure, there is no room for nepotism. There is no room for injustice where God sweeps it under the rug. If he did that, he wouldn't be perfectly just. No. If you ever wondered, how does God see sin? Look at Christ on the cross. When it was his own son, still, justice was carried forth. That's the one answer right here as to why it must be that Jesus went to the cross. It was because of your sins and my sins 
It was because of who I am and who you are before God. You are not being perfect. You are not a perfect being. You are not at all good. Your own conscience is telling you that clearly right now you're not good, bringing to you the memories of thoughts and actions and words that you know would disqualify you from being in the presence of a perfect God. That is why it was necessary. That is why we call him Savior, because it was the only, but it's only through that that our sins have been dealt with, paid, and the record of the debt can be erased. But why would he come into the world to do that? What motivated him? Some people like to think maybe the reason why God did this is because we are somehow so valuable, we are so worthy, that God would be willing to, say, to pay such a cost for us. Now that is not the answer that the Bible gives. Or maybe some people say that God created us and saved us because he was lonely. That's not true either, because God has no lack in himself. He himself is perfect and all-sufficient in every way. He is not saving us. He's not sending a son to do this because of any lack within him. It is, if it's not, so if it's not an external reason, maybe because God was forced to, maybe God was so enamored with us that it wasn't because of any lacking he had. What was it that motivated the must for Jesus to come? It's because, properly speaking, God is not forced to do anything. Nobody can bend his arm and force him to go away with what he doesn't want to, where, uh, that he doesn't want to go. But right there is the explanation, that he wanted to do this freely, That's what the Bible tells us. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So was God forced? No. God was not forced to love the world. God lacks something and therefore he had to love the world? No. We simply read here that God in his perfection, chose freely to love an unlovable creation, us. That's what the final explanation is, that this must came about freely as a choice within God. It is his love, and not a love that was forced on him, but a love that he freely decided to give and to lavish on us. And as soon as God, in his perfect counsel, decided to love, the cross became a necessity because here's the thing about God's love. This is what Jesus tells us, that the Son of Man must come and bear all of these terrible sufferings and ultimately death under God's judgment for sin because God has decided to love fallen humanity. And because God has decided to love, this is the cross, this is what the cross is telling us, God's love. It's not like our love so often. John 13, as we go to the last week of Jesus' life, we see there described that Jesus, having loved his disciples, loved them to the end. 
And that is certainly true of God's love. When the cross was before Jesus himself and his love for the people that he would resolve or rescue, he said, nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. In Hebrews 12, 2, it says this, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who by the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. If we could peer back into eternity past, it boggles the mind to think about a time when time didn't even exist. But if we can look back before God decided to love humanity and save us, before God decided to love us, there was no necessity. God, in his perfection, would have to simply give justice, to let us die, to ignore us. But as soon as God, in the freeness of his own love, decided to love us, then the cross becomes an absolute necessity because God's love never fails, because his love is never turned back because the cost was too high. And don't you see there is the grounds for why every single one of us, when the Bible calls us to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, we come with confidence. Is the confidence in yourself when you come to God? You think, well, I'm such a great person, God would never turn me away. I hope that your own conscience will tell you that that can't be the case. But when you come to God and you're trusting in Jesus Christ, the display of his love, you see what solid ground you stand on. You see that this is how the Apostle Paul reasons to us in Romans. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There alone, the cross is our solid foundation of resting on God's love for us. There is no other ground to rest on. As we think about this passage, for Jesus is teaching us here what he has come to do. The Son of Man must suffer and be killed and rise again to take away the sins that you might know you have and the certainty, the promise of God's love that doesn't turn away, that doesn't say the cost is too high. I'm sorry, I can't keep loving you. God never says that. And we see proven at the cross where, he, where does that leave us? But you can see it in verse 34. Jesus spells it out for us. So why was Peter chastised? Get behind me, Satan. It's because he was more concerned with the ways of man than the ways of God. He goes from being blessed by Jesus, blessed are you, to being cursed by Jesus in a few sentences. Get behind me, Satan. Be careful of embracing Jesus when you need him and refusing him when you think his ways don't work for you. His ways are the only ways. His name is the only name. So he sat down to speak to them and rebuked Peter and said, Look, that's not the way of God, and that's not the plan of God 
So this brings us now to the cost. This is the next section. Jesus expands his teaching by calling the crowds to him, which is fascinating. So up to this point, he's been speaking to his disciples, specifically the 12. Now he calls the crowds to him. And it's a familiar passage to many of us. But Jesus intended it to reprogram his followers' thinking. So 2,000 years ago, Jesus gives what comes next as a way of reprogramming their understanding of what it means to follow him. And I believe that I need and you need the same kind of reprogramming today. Verse 34, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. This is also a familiar passage, but think about this. This is shocking. It's not familiar at all to the disciples. Jesus is basically saying, not only am I going to die, which is shocking enough, but you also must die. What are you talking about? We're supposed to be the victors and reign with you. Well, yes, but not the way you think. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, that means follow. It's a question. If anyone, if you would, would you? If you would follow, if you would come after him, what does that mean, to follow Jesus? It's not just to confess that he's Lord. And I think I'm guilty of this, too. We shrink down what it means to be a Christian, to just saying the right things or believing the right things about him. The gospel tells us that even the demons believe and that they shudder. Being a follower of Jesus is not just confessing that he's Messiah. It's receiving him and it's living his way. What does that mean exactly? Jesus tells this often quoted but rarely understood phrase, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's what he says. So following Jesus equals self-denial and cross-bearing. That's the formula he gives. What does that mean exactly? It's crucial for us to understand that if we're going to follow him, we need to understand this formula. First, let's talk about what it's not. He's not saying that you lose your individual uniqueness. He's not saying that you die as a martyr. He's not saying that you live like a monk detached from earthly things. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying deny yourself stuff. He's not talking about self-denial like a form of self-discipline, like you know dieting and exercise and self-discipline. He's talking about denying yourself, denying yourself, denying what's at the center of who you are right now apart from Christ. It's the self. To follow Jesus means the self must be denied. It must be denounced. It must be dethroned, and that's crucial. That's what he's after. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Say the right words? No. 
only if they lead to self-denial, self-dethronement. This is a hard, hard teaching, as I said, for the 21st century Americans especially. Our whole culture was built around the elevation and celebration of self. The message of the gospel stands in direct contrast to our culture, which says the self needs to be accepted. The self is to be elevated. And God, when you get in touch with, and that's how you know we have a fulfilled life. We get in touch with God. And the gospel says no. To follow Christ is to deny the self. It's completely upside down. But there may be a part of you that wants to qualify, wants to rationalize, and wants to reject. That's the natural man inside of you. But the best thing you can do for yourself is to surrender it to Christ. When Jesus says, you must lose your life to find it. And so he goes on and he says, take up your cross. What does that mean? Now, this is not Jesus' way of talking about hard things that happen in our life. How we sometimes hear people talk about cross-bearing. They talk about, I'm facing this hardship. I lost my job. It's my cross to bear. I got sick. It's my cross to bear. I'm taking care of my elderly parents. It's my cross to bear. I'm dealing with this difficult relationship. That's my cross to bear. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Those things are real. We need his strength and grace to deal with them. But when he says, follow me, he's not saying take up your cross, meaning you're going to have some irritations and some hardships in your life. So that's something profoundly different. Cross-bearing was not a metaphor used in Jesus' day. In the first century, when Jesus says, take up your cross, we hear that, we hear that, like it's a churchy way of talking. In Jesus' day, nobody talked that way. It's a crazy analogy. It's like wearing a, a little miniature electric chair around your neck. And so it's crazy. They, they thought, a cross? It's shocking and, quite frankly, offensive to those people. The cross was an instrument of torture and death, an instrument of subjugation and surrender. If you were carrying a cross in Jesus' day, it meant you were under the thumb of Rome. You were in total surrender and submission, and you're on your way to die. And that is the point. To follow Jesus means submission, surrender, and death to self. We're on our way to die, as he has died, so we might live. I know that as I said this, it's a hard teaching for those of us in the 21st century American culture, but it's precisely the way of the king. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it beautifully in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm not living. The self is not ruling. The self is not on the throne. Christ lives in me. He reigns. He rules because he loved me. 
How do I know that? He died for me. So the life I'm living in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The last couple verses, verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whatever, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the, fa- the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. In these final verses for today, we find three promises. The first promise is that you will find your life. Jesus is the Savior. We don't save ourselves. But his point here is when we surrender, when we take up our cross, which is the way of putting to death my need to have my way, my need to be in control. In my life, when I lay that down, then I find a life I could have no other way. You will not find your life by building your best life now. You will not find your life by earning it or by working for it or by achieving it or by grasping it. You will find your life, the gospel says, by releasing your need to have your way. And then you're given back something you could never imagine, a life far beyond your wildest dreams, a life of the presence of grace and fullness of Christ, now and forever. All you need to do is release control. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul, it says? For what can a man return, give in return for his soul? So the second promise we see here is that you get your soul. You keep your soul intact. And the converse of this is, if you chase after the things that yourself wants, achievement, wealth, prosperity, notoriety, comfort, security, if you chase after those things, you lose your soul. You become soulless in a sense. You might have all those things. You might, you might not. You might achieve them, but in the process, you lose your sense of self. You know a sense of who you really are in Christ. So that's the second promise. You keep your soul. In Luke 12, verses 16 to 18, it says, And he told them this parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For now I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat and drink and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Vivid illustration of what the things of the earth really are worth. The third promise is, For whoever is ashamed of me, of my words of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father and with the holy angels. So Jesus puts this in a negative, but the promise is this. 
you will enter glory. You keep your soul and you enter glory. That's what he's saying. And you don't get that by achieving it, by accomplishing it, by demanding your way or putting yourself on the throne. You get it by dethroning yourself daily and putting to death the cross yourself. What does that mean to follow Jesus? It means to lay down my need to have my way, to know that his promises are true. What's offered to you is of infinite value and worth. Jim Elliot said this, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Why would I struggle and fight to hold on something that's not worth anything that I can keep anyway? And what's offered to me is a life I could never imagine in his presence, a soul that's at peace and intact, and the promise of entering his glory. Friends, let's follow Jesus by denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and trusting him above all else. One picture of this truth we see back in verse 35. Whoever loses his life, his job, his reputation, his career, whatever else, for my sake and the gospel's sake, will save it. It's true, for his sake and for the gospel. It's the greatest news in the world. Think about this. What you're losing, you're losing for the one who came and lived the life we couldn't live, a life of no sin against the Father. And even though he had no sin for which to die, who chose to die on a cross to pay the price for our sin, and whose story did not stop in a grave, he's the Messiah who conquers by being killed. Three days later, he rises to ascend into heaven, and right now his spirit is calling you to trust in him for your life in a way that will far outlast anything in the world. Do do you believe this? Do you see this? This is how you save your life, by dying to yourself, by choosing the suffering that comes with obedience to Christ over the comfort that comes from disobedience, and by renouncing prosperity and praise in this world for prosperity and praise in the world to come. May God raise us, all of us, men, women, and children, to those who see who he really is, not for what we want him to be, and who realize what it really means to follow him, no matter what it costs us in this world. We're confident in his reward. Let's pray. Lord, together now we thank you so much for your precious word. And we thank you for the fact that your word tells us so plainly that Christ came, he went to the cross, and he was raised from the grave for us. He did it not because he was guilty, but because we are guilty. And all of that proves to us so clearly your great love, your love that does not turn back, it never fails. Even now, your hand is stretched out to us 
We are so unworthy, and yet, Lord, your hand is open to us. Lord, help every one of us to see you and see your word clearly. Help us to see ourselves clearly. Would you use your cons- our consciences to show us that we couldn't hope to be accepted before you with our own goodness? We need Jesus. We need him to bring us to you. We need a sacrifice on the cross which wipes away our debt of sin. We need Christ. And would you help us all here to know that and to come to the Lord Jesus and to enter into his love and life everlasting. We pray this in Jesus.